if we stop there and say, so we gave this much, so we're obviously having a great impact, there's, a, there, there's something missing. Because impact is what happens when somebody else takes what we've provided and does something with it. Welcome to Cause and Purpose, the show about the leaders, innovators, and change agents working on the front lines to solve some of the world's greatest social challenges. I'm your host, Mike Spear. One of the biggest pieces of feedback I get about the show is that there's too much focus on the guests and not enough backstory about me or what brings me to this type of work. While that's pretty unlikely to change in the long term, we're going to do a little something different with this episode. I sat down with my co-founder at Altruist, Eric Barella, to talk about ourselves, our perspective on the impact sector, and what drove us to launch our new project, altruist.org. Eric is a career-long measurement and evaluation specialist. He's worked at many large impact-driven organizations, he's served on the board of the American Evaluation Association, and is an advisor to the American Journal of Evaluation. We launched Altruist together earlier this year. I'm excited to be off to the races again on this entrepreneurial journey with you. I'm really excited to have you on and start talking about Altruist. You know, as you know, Cause and Purpose has been kind of a passion project, something I've been just doing for myself and for my consulting work. But as we get into launching Altruist, excited to double down on it. We've got a great lineup of guests this year. As, as you know, uh, we've already had a bunch this, this season already, but now we've got a series more. And I thought now would be a good time to kind of take a little break, check in, and talk about what we're doing at Altruist. One of the things also is, you know, for myself, the main bit of feedback I get from friends and folks who listen is that there's not enough of myself in the show. So I'm excited to share a bit about that. But we'll start with, with you, Eric Barella, yes, <laughs> Life, yes. lifelong career monitoring and evaluation pro, decided to sign on to Altruist. Give us a bit of your, your background. I think at this point, some folks maybe have read the blog article, seen you on the website, but tell us where you came from and, and what brought you to m and work. Sure. So I was born and raised in East Los Angeles. For those who don't know, uh, East LA is a very, very large, predominantly working class, very Latino, very Chicano, actually, Mexican-American neighborhood. I uh, grew up around a lot of diversity, not the kind of diversity I think a lot of people think of. I was around a lot of different Latin cultures, grew up with a lot of, you know, a lot of different Asian cultures. Didn't encounter very many white people until I actually got to college. I was... For, for all intents and purposes, and I probably still am, very much a nerd, uh, as, 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 I, as I like to think of it. I, I'm very proudly so. My parents would bring me out uh, as a bit of a parlor trick to recite the names of all U.S. presidents uh, when I was five years old. Also, I think what kind of shaped me as I was growing up, too, was the fact that I am a gay man. And I think that that was a bit confusing for people, too, because, again, just not very much exposure to it. I wasn't even sure what I was until, you know, getting into high school and college. But I think having that in my, you know, in my background is definitely, you know, definitely shaped who I am and why I do what I do. So I was very good at school. The question was never if I would go to college, but where. I learned dur- during that that exposure is a, is a big thing. Uh, my parents weren't really exposed to kind of the college application process and, and everything. And uh, they, they knew enough to know how to guide me, but they also knew enough to know that uh, others were going to need to guide me as well. And so 
already, I think that experience really helped to shape me in terms of understanding that sometimes people need a leg up. People need a bit of sponsorship. People need to be, to be led in the door mm. uh, because I did. And so I go to UCLA as an undergrad. I know that is, that is one thing of the many things that we have in common. First term at UCLA happened and I took a class called the Social Psychology of Higher Education, Ed 180. So it was an upper division class that I could take, you know, as a first year. Something happened. I think everyone around me could hear the light bulb going, light bulb turning on. Yeah. The opportunity to ask questions, get answers, uh, study data, just really resonated. It was something that I, I learned early on that I just really love. And so, through happenstance, uh, I happened to d decide early, early on that I wanted to go into some kind of a research career. So I majored in psychology and studied education, did a year abroad, uh, studied in England, which really, again, broadened my horizons. So I did a year there, and when I came back, I graduated, and I needed a job. Mm -hmm. And a friend had a job at what at the time was UCLA's Center for the Study of Evaluation. I got a job as an administrative assistant there. Kind of saw logistically how research and evaluation worked and learned the difference between research and evaluation uh, and really liked what evaluation was able to offer me. That you're able to ask pragmatic questions and get pragmatic answers mm. and actually roll up your sleeves and do something and really affect more immediate change. And that I thought was just really cool, you know, to be able to use my skills in, in that way, to be able to help other organizations, other people to make better decisions, to, um, to better themselves. And so I then went to the University of Colorado Boulder to get my master's in, uh, in education. Uh, focusing on kind of educational foundations and policy, but again, with a concentration in evaluation. And there is where I was mentored by Dr. Ernest House. He, in the evaluation literature and the evaluation canon, developed an approach called social justice evaluation, mm. where the evaluator works to give voice to those who maybe don't have one in the program or you know in the organization he made a mark for himself studying the push excel program uh, under jesse jackson that kind of stuck with me being good at school being in graduate school doing okay uh, coming out and and everybody seemingly being okay with that i'll bet everybody knew but i still had to come out to them for them to say oh oh yeah. wow living as you know an out gay man, an out Chicano, an out graduate student, an out nerd. I felt like I had a voice. Mm. I think back to where I grew up and I think back to some other experiences that I've had where, you know, I've gotten a PhD and I know kids who I played with who, you know, were shot and killed when they were teenagers. I've seen police brutality up close. Thankfully did not affect me personally, but I have, I have seen it. And I know that a lot of people around me didn't 
get the same chances I had weren't surrounded by the love and support that I was. If there's going to be a way for me to do that in some way, shape or form, that's what I want to do. I think the interesting part for me was trying to find how to do that with the skills and experience that I had and with the things that I like to do. So mm. how can I support others? How can I give somebody that voice by being a researcher, by being an evaluator? And so the social justice theory really, really resonated. Uh, and then I uh, hightailed it back to UCLA to do my PhD. And that's where I studied under uh, Dr. Marvin Alkin and uh, at the time, she wasn't Dr. Tina Christie, but she now is. She's the uh, current uh, dean of the UCLA School of Education and uh, Information Studies. And that's where I learned a lot about utilization. I want to go back. I don't want to skip over a couple of things that you mentioned. What is unique and different about social justice evaluation? How is the work that you're doing today informed by some of these demographics that you find yourself in, being LGBTQ, being Latino? You know, what is social justice evaluation and how does your personal background influence the work that you're doing today? So social justice evaluation is really focused on that ultimate goal, on not only telling the story of an organization, but also making sure that those who have been silenced have a say in that story. Uh, there are other approaches to evaluation that focus on the method, others that focus on, on use. And so this is really about valuing voice and valuing kind of community in a way, making sure the entire community participating in the program, from the participants to the implementers, have, have some kind of a voice. Uh, they're, they're somehow represented. So that ultimate goal for me is something that I try to instill in, in all of my work. I see myself as somebody who is very fortunate. I've had a lot of success. I have transcended my, my surroundings, so to speak, although I never really saw it that way. And I have some power and privilege. Uh, I am a cisgendered male. I am well-educated. With that comes a certain amount of, of privilege and a certain amount of power. I'm also you know, a member of you know, an ethnic minority. I'm also a member of uh, the LGBTQIA plus community, communities that can often be silenced. And so I feel there's, a, uh, there's an imperative for me to try to marry the two, to try to give voice to those who have been silenced either by, you know, by, by program or by society and to do it in a way where I can actually use my, my position to make that a reality. So I know you've been a journalist, <laughs> yep. nonprofit tech guy, yeah, a professional poker player. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> How do those things come into play? Cause you know, when, when considering your career yeah. path and social impact? This might sound strange on its face, but for me, what we're doing at Altruist hits at the perfect center of all of my past careers. If you drew a Venn diagram of all the different things that I've done and sort of like the attributes that you learn and, and develop and the things that you do, it's like exactly at the center. 
I should also say that, you know, part of the origin of this, I, you know, this really came from a conversation I had with a friend, Dr. Ben Cipollini years ago, kind of dusted it off more recently. Coming through the pandemic, like I'm a social person, pandemic was real hard. And I decided to start a service business essentially a couple months before the pandemic hit. So mm -hmm. less than ideal timing. Uh, so it was a frustrating period of time. And as we were coming out of the pandemic, I really wanted to get clear on how I wanted to spend my time, who I wanted to spend my time with, and the impact that I wanted to have through the work that I was doing. I hadn't until then felt ready to start another startup. But coming out of the pandemic, I really felt as if I had no choice. Time's wasting, we're not getting any younger. The social challenges out there that we're all facing are not going away. Mm. And so the time is now. I, I love Nick Ebeling and his work with Not Impossible Labs. And one of the things he says is, if not us, who, if not now, when? And I try to remind myself that on a pretty regular basis. To go back to my, my career paths, you know, I was always interested in, in film and television, photography. I did theater as a kid, onto journalism and documentary work. So storytelling has been a very important part of my life. It's something I've always been passionate about. It's part of the reason why I want to do this podcast. My eyes were open to social entrepreneurship and impact work in the nonprofit space specifically when I joined Classy early on. And that was a 10-year odyssey that I wouldn't trade for anything. Uh, I really, you know, became very much who I was at that time. And it took me a long time to figure out who I was without it, to be honest with you. But I love the creation behind a startup. I love bringing something new into the world. I love collaborating with great people. And I want to have the backs of these folks that are out there in the field. So it comes from, from both of those things. I've always loved travel and seeing things in different ways. I'm scuba certified. So one of the reasons I became scuba certified is I just wanted to hang upside down underwater and see the world from a different angle. Just to expand the way you, you think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and poker, believe it or not, does factor in. What I learned from poker was how to read people, how to assess somebody's motivations very quickly, how to trust instincts. You start seeing signals for things that may not add up or that you don't understand, but it's a skill to make sense of those quickly and interpret them in the right way. And that has informed how I view philanthropists and foundations and nonprofits that I work with. Most importantly, I have learned to live by expected value calculations. I've learned to make calculated risks. It's why I went to Classy in the first place. It's basically how I live my life. So when I look at organizational impact, it's one thing to say, okay, we've done X, Y, Z. We've had this impact on the world. Historically, here's our efficiency. I say, that's great. And then I yawn and go somewhere else. What I want to know is the potential value. If you have a track record, awesome. You deserve to scale that and, and keep at it. Where I get really excited is the high potential, underserved, underfunded, innovative group of hungry people trying to solve a real problem. And when you look at expected value, really the calculation for those, that you, those of you who don't know it, and you can look it up online, there's some great resources, but expected value calculation is essentially what's the best thing that can happen and you multiply that by the likelihood that's gonna happen. Subtract that by the worst thing that can happen and the likelihood of that thing happening. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can have as many of those in the series. It doesn't have to be the best or the worst, but the good things that can happen. Yeah. So when I make decisions about life, about starting a new company, about social impact. What I'm looking for is a high EV calculation. And I try to run that, those trials as many times as I possibly can. I look at impact both through the lens of the track record and equally so the, the potential. How is a team positioned? How, how qualified are they? How, how resourced are they? 
what's the strength of the organizational body, not overhead. What's the strength of the body? What's their, what's the likelihood they'll be able to achieve what they set out to achieve? How aligned is their solution with the best thinking in the space? What, what the smartest people in the world think is, is the most effective way of solving a given problem. And then we look at the outputs, outcomes, and impact to the extent that it's measurable. We look at randomized control studies if they're available. But we also look at what impact that intervention is likely to have in the future. And if that messy calculation ends up being high EV, let's get those guys some cash. Let's put some win in their sales and let's start solving some real problems. The storytelling aspect really speaks to what I want to do, what I enjoy doing, what I'm passionate about, what I see as a problem with the other players in the space, how their storytelling's pretty weak. Even if you agree with their information, it's hard to parse. So really wanting to communicate this stuff in a very compelling way, wanting to tell the right story, ask the right questions, uncover the often very surprising high-impact, high-potential programs that are out there, and look at it not just from proven track record, but from what they can do for us in the future. I also think, you know, I, I love this one TED Talk by Sean Acor. It's totally unrelated to social impact. It's about, it's called the happiness advantage. It's about positive psych. And he starts the talk. Have you, have you seen this? Are you familiar? I haven't. No. He starts, it's a great talk. He's, the guy's hilarious. Uh, he starts the talk by saying, you should never start your talk with a graph, but I'm going to start my talk with a graph. And to boot, it's totally made of information. And it's a very clear line, and it's one little dot above the line. And he says, that's an anomaly, so we can delete it. And we know it's an anomaly because it's screwing up my, my data. But what he talks about is like where he gets excited is about that anomaly. He says, why is it so much above the rest? And where I get really excited is not bringing everybody up to the baseline. Let's, I don't, that's great. That's a good goal. Fine. If that's your thing, terrific. It, for me, I don't get excited about helping everybody be average. What I get excited about is seeing the high-performing weirdo and saying, how do we bring everybody up to that level? How do we support that solution, that person, that entity, whatever it is? And how do we use what they know to help others achieve that kind of success? Altruists. <laughs> Two high-performing weirdos helping other high-performing weirdos perform. I mean, that's not a crazy tagline. <laughs> I don't know if it works on a sticker, but we can give it a shot. No, I love that. And, and thank you for, uh, for giving others a bit more insight into you. I think the thing that you said and the thing that really excites me about altruists and about its potential is that feeling of someone's got your back. Yeah. Trying to uh, make the world a better place can be, can be lonely. It can be controversial. It can be, it can be a lot of negative things, but it's, it's going to be something that, that really does make the world a better place. And I want us to be in those people's corners. It's also important to me as we build this to, to maintain objectivity. And that's a journalism thing, too. There's a lot of stuff out there that's sort of taking money from both sides. There's a lot of finger pointing. People are very quick to jump to fraud, especially if they see what they believe to be high overhead, which oftentimes is just somebody being honest about how they're allocating funds. This is about objectivity and neutrality. It's not about finger pointing. It's about picking winners based on the merits. And for those that don't quote unquote qualify, those who are not ready to be recommended by altruists, it's about helping them get to that point. It's not pointing fingers at, at them, calling them bad guys or, or low impact or whatever the case might be. It's about giving them recommendations to get to the point where we really feel comfortable recommending them. Absolutely. I think the point you made about objectivity is, is a really good one because it's also something that 
evaluators and m and professionals uh, face. Mm. The longer I'm an evaluator, the longer I am an evaluator internal to organizations, uh, the more I've learned that objectivity is a skill. Yeah. That one can be positioned anywhere and be objective. Yeah. And the key is transparency. I've and known. compassionate honesty. It's about exactly. being direct with somebody, but being compassionate about it. Separating the, the person from the problem. Mm -hmm. And you know, providing the evidentiary support. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I've come to find this, and this is the data that supports that claim. Yeah. And um, I've, seen, I've seen very well-meaning people uh, within organizations really maintain a level of objectivity yeah. th that really is to be admired. Mm -hmm. I've seen external people get so involved with the programs and organizations they're working for that they really didn't have any objectivity. Yeah. And so it's an important thing to consider and it's really important for you know anybody in this space to really think about their positioning and and really how to show their objectivity in that position. Yeah. You're someone who comes from a minority background, LGBTQIA. I've never been those things. I'm like your average sort of white dude from a middle class family and, you know, have had a lot of privilege and, and luck. And for a long time, I felt like that meant that I didn't really have a story to tell. What I realized is part of what I bring to this work is that despite those things, you know, I've, I've experienced adversity, I've experienced trauma. My family is Jewish and, and very culturally Jewish, not religious today, but uh, very culturally Jewish. And they, you know, my grandparents came over from Russia fleeing anti-Semitism. My dad used to talk about having to get in fights in Chicago because people would pick on him for being Jewish when he was you know, going to and from school. And he once told me, I was a bit of a pacifist, especially as a kid, but he once told me he was going to get mad at me if I didn't defend myself against bullies or people uh -huh. that were picking on me. <laughs> and, and so I, you know, despite everything, I really, I've always felt this sort of, I'm not an immigrant myself. I'm, you know, I, I don't know what it is, third or fourth generation, I guess, depending on your math. But I, I've always carried this sort of minority, sort of immigrant sort of chip on my shoulder, this sort of ethos, feeling excluded from the majority. I, you know, it, it, I still cringe every time I hear somebody say this is a Christian country because that excludes my family. That excludes so many others. What, I, what I'm coming around to is understand that more about myself, wanting to leverage that those things as a positive in, in this work. And even though I have had the privilege and, and grew up, as I said, very like straight, cisgendered, white dude from the suburbs, I feel empathy for folks uh, who have not been so lucky. And that's part of why, you know, that's part of who I'm talking about when I say I want to go have their back. Yeah when we think about it everyone has been on either side of privilege uh, it's not just you know BIPOC people it's mm. not just the LGBTQIA plus community it's not just women it's mm -hmm. not just non-binary people it is really you know all of us in in some way shape or form and I think it's important for everyone to remember that and, and I think there are a lot of people who, who do not. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, you're, you're a straight, cisgendered <laughs> dude. I'm like the average but, guy. Like but, you point to the average guy. That's me. But you have a story to tell. Yeah. You really do. I mean, 
if you didn't have a story to tell, then there would be a whole lot fewer movies and TV shows about white guys. <laughs> That's one of the reasons, yeah. But, but yeah, we, we, all, we all do. And, and it's important, I think, to realize that everyone's story is important. Yeah. That, you know, just because I am a, you know, gay Latino male, that I have wisdom or, you know, when, when I when I talk to my older uh, African-American female friends yeah. that, you know, they are seen as, you know, the wise, the wise black lady. Yeah. And and I think it's important to know that we all possess some kind of wisdom. And it's it's not that one person is, is privileged over another in that case. Or we should remember that. That's the case. Yeah, I've, I've very seldom felt privileged. I very seldom felt like I have the advantages of the you know average white dude. But I've also felt where I've been in a room and I've been taken seriously, more seriously than others, purely because of how I look. And that's always seemed very unfair to me. I, I've experienced that and it's made me very uncomfortable what has happened. And oftentimes those people have better ideas and were more qualified than I am. I just, <laughs> and I find myself echoing what they say just to get their voices heard a little bit. But like, it's, it's always a weird dynamic when somebody who's smarter, well, better educated, you know, more hands-on with whatever the, the situation might be, is not given the opportunity to speak where somebody like me is. So this is bringing it back to the social justice evaluation. Mm. Why I find it so important to be able to lift up those other voices. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, you, you tell me that you know, you, you saw me as a dyed-in-the-wool social entrepreneur. <laughs> I've seen you as a dyed-in-the-wool social justice evaluator. Oh, interesting. You want to give people that uh, that push up. You want to yeah. open the door. You want to have, have have their backs. And it's really what makes me so excited for this work, that we have an opportunity to do that on a, uh, on a large scale. Yeah. I just think that's really cool. Uh, you know, the 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 evaluation nerd me is coming out just saying this is really really <laughs> neat. I love it. Absolutely, and and I'm very excited to be at the beginning of this journey. I'll also add that you know when I left Classy, I guess every career transition, but particularly when I left Classy, I took a hard look at the things that I could have done better. I'm like Bill Belichick after a football game, like. We could win the game, but it's always about what we missed. And I did a lot of studying, a lot of reading, and a lot of research around how to build businesses well, how to build thriving cultures well. I learned a lot about monitoring and evaluation and how to think about impact. And I'm very excited to take the hard lessons learned, to take what we actually, what I know that I did well or what we did well, and that sort of academic knowledge. And, and put it in play and really, really build something that's lasting and built on a strong position of values, uncompromising in its values and its, uh, its approach to the world. I think there's a lot that will learn and grow and change and I, I hope to constantly be iterating, but the standard of excellence should be uncompromising. And, and that's building something that's, that's inclusive, that's, that's, that works for everybody, uh, and that is uncompromising in its adherence to high standards of excellence is something I'm as excited about as uh, as the rest of it, which we've already talked about. Yeah. If not us, then who? <laughs> if not, not now, now then when? I know. Um, that's that's just something that keeps that just keeps ringing in my head because I see 
so many nonprofit leaders have that same attitude. It's yeah. why they're working in the nonprofit sector. Yeah. And so, you know, to be able to to be able to help them really prove that that's really a good way of thinking yeah. is 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 really is really important and and I'm really looking forward to being able to to support that in yeah. in any way that we can. We spent a lot of time talking about the virtues of and the differences and the, you know the efficacy of qualitative versus quantitative evaluation. Ah, uh, yes. So yes. I really want to know, what's the difference? How do they play together? How should people look at evaluation as a whole, knowing that some of the things are qualitative and some are quantitative? And part of the reason I ask, I'll let you <laughs> answer in a second. <laughs> part of the reason I ask is I, I've encountered a lot of nonprofits uh, typically you know, doing sort of less tangible things, maybe social work or something like that, that tell me you know, basically that they can't come up with impact data because what they do is all qualitative and I, I was it never like I understand there's a certain amount of subjectivity but I was like you know my mentality is you should at least give it a shot at least try to measure something mm -hmm. so let's talk about the difference between those two how they work together how you should look at it broadly and what do you tell organizations that might you know have a little bit of a softer science very good set of questions about the <laughs> quantitative qualitative debate and it's funny because in kind of the research in in the research sector in the academy in you know the practitioner sector this debate will come up and then you'll have a lot of people saying oh we're beyond that we're beyond that we we don't talk about that anymore couple months later it comes right back up so apparently we are still dealing with it uh, in in the research and evaluation sector I see quantitative and qualitative data as both necessary and honestly insufficient on their own. Hmm. Uh, quantitative data usually helps us answer what, like what, what's going on, how much, how many. And that's important to know. It's important to know what it is we're doing. But it's very hard for a number in and of itself to tell us anything about why or how something is happening. So we may know what is happening, but getting that qualitative data, observing behavior, talking to people, getting that more, you know, that more narrative body of data allows us to, to dive a bit deeper into the why and into the how. So I see them as linked. I think, you can tell one part of the story with one type of data. You can tell another part of the story with another type of data. But the fuller story comes when you're able to talk about, you know, the what, the how, and, and the why. So for me, they're both integral to, to the evaluation process. You know, people tell, you know, people may say, you know, that makes me a mixed methods methodologist. And that comes with, with its own set of stipulations and prerequisites and and I think I think that's really where I fall being an evaluator though I see myself and I see those in my profession as, as something of a Felix the cat we have a bag of tricks mm. because when we get to an organization or when we get to a program we don't necessarily know what's going to be there we may see a ton of very rigorously collected quantitative data that is just, you know, crying out for a statistical software program to, to make sense of it. 
we may find a whole bunch of papers thrown into a folder that is the extent of the data that's been collected. So we never know. It's important for us to have various methods in our, in our arsenal, in our bag of tricks, to tackle the tackle whatever data is and, and, and or collect the data that we need to collect. Certain questions that an organization may have are going to be best answered through quantitative means. Others, best through qualitative means. And I think it's not privileging one over the other. It's figuring out what the most important question is and getting the appropriate data to answer that question. Not doing that, I think, does a disservice. We're trying to serve communities and individuals. And when we're not asking the questions that need to be asked about whether we actually are providing that support and see what the support is actually, you know, is actually doing, then, then we're really, yeah, we're really doing a disservice to those who we're supposed to be supporting. Maybe it's not the most popular opinion, but I really come down in the middle and I really come down in the let's ask why first position around methodology. Well, certainly it's important to ask the right questions or everything else is going to be off. We've, we've learned that one for sure. As we're talking about qualitative versus quantitative, something you said just immediately triggered vanity metrics. <laughs> so ah, it's important okay. to count. It's important to know the, you know, the individual widgets or whatever the case might be, your unit of measurement. But how do you differentiate, a van like, first of all, what is a vanity metric? But second, how do you differentiate that from a quantitative metric that really is meaningful? So first, it's not that vanity metrics aren't meaningful. It's the way that they're used. And so a vanity metric is really an output that's, that's used as a proxy for, for impact. So the amount of money a, a granting organization gives away, uh, the amount of, of licenses a software company provides, mm. It's necessary to know that, again, so we know what we're putting out into the world. But if we stop there and say, so we gave this much, so we're obviously having a great impact, there's, a, there, there's something missing. Because impact is what happens when somebody else takes what we've provided and does something with it. Hmm. And so when we stop and say, the amount of money shows us what our impact is, that is misleading. It is unfortunately all too common in the corporate sector and the for-profit sector, and not as much in the nonprofit sector, but it still definitely is there, where we talk about how much we did, and that is that that is you know what what goes into a glossy annual report. That is where the measurement stops, and it's necessary to know those things, but it's not sufficient because again we need to know. What, what actually happened with, with that. So, you know, it's all well and good to say you know, we, had, we had this number of people, you know, X number of people attend a workshop. Mm -hmm. What did they do with the information they learned at the workshop? That's really the outcome question, the impact question. What did somebody do with the resources that, that we provided them? And so wanting to get deeper is is really kind of how to take those vanity metrics and really really push them and really make them mm -hmm. legitimate outcome and impact impact metrics i'll be the first to say 
it can be hard to measure that. Uh, it can be hard to measure what people do, uh, especially, you know, if you can't get a hold of them again. Right. Uh, and so it can be it can be tough. It's it's much easier to to make something numeric than again to try to find out you know the what versus the how and the why. Yeah. But it's important. And what I've seen um, in various organizations I've worked for is there sometimes is a fear around getting impact data because what if it's not the best data? What if it tells us we're not as what if it as makes impactful. us look bad? <laughs> yeah, we're not as impactful as as we think we are. Right. Yeah. There there is a uh, there is a fear that collecting impact data will expose some of the cracks that an organization has. However, that's where I say knowledge is power. Right. I would rather know if something isn't quite working. And, and learn about how to potentially fix it, then just go blithely along thinking that everything we do is, is the best possible intervention we could be providing, and it turns out to, to not be. So yeah. I think knowing is, is really important and being strong enough to face that possibility, knowing that you can use the data, you can use the, the process, to improve, to yeah. get better. Where does that hesitation come from? Do you think it's just human nature, not, not wanting to be called out or shown your own flaws? Or, or is it something to do with the culture of philanthropy? Just because there, there's so much around, you know, fear of failure to, to surface from your donors, because then you start talking about fraud and, and all this stuff. It really is a problem when it comes to allowing organizations to innovate. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. I can say feedback is a gift till the cows come home. But it can be tough when somebody's coming at you with, with what isn't quite working, especially if you've put a lot of you know, your heart and soul into it. I, I get that, you know, it, it can be tough to be told, you may not be exactly right. But I also think uh, in addition to human nature, the philanthropic sector also kind of exacerbates it. When so much money is supposed to be earmarked for program, you know, and not overhead. Well, if the program isn't implemented perfectly to get the, you know, the maximum possible impact out of it, then there is a definite danger of that, that money being pulled if it's so tied yeah. to the implementation of, of that program. It's amazing how universal the overhead conversation still is. I mean, every time I talk to somebody about altruists, typically, if they're not in the sector, if they're not an m and &E person or they're not an advisor of some kind or the head of an organization, they go, oh, well, you got to keep the salaries down. It's like it's like a gut reaction. <laughs> I'm still shocked by it. But, you know, people deliver the programs. People are the programs a lot of times. And, you know, if you're going to hire and retain good people, you got to pay them something. Absolutely. I think a lot of granting organizations lose sight of that. Programs do not implement themselves. Some programs would be great if they did, but people do. Just because there is supposed, you know, nobility working in the nonprofit sector, you, know, you are making a difference and that should be able to sustain you more than money. And I think that is a, uh, I think that's a crock. You know, people need to be treated like the professionals they are. Yeah. And n those who work in the nonprofit sector, they're professionals too. 
Hi, Mike here. I'd like to take a quick time out from the episode to let you know a little bit more about a project we're working on called Altruist. There's a deeply held secret in the nonprofit space, which for some of you may be just a little bit controversial, and that is philanthropy does not equal impact. The challenges faced by our global community are more complex and urgent than ever before. And for philanthropic funders who care about impact, for those passionate about really moving the needle on important social issues, there's very little information available to help guide the decision-making around their investments. That's where Altruist comes in, by seeking out the best, most innovative and promising high-impact solutions, by combining top-quality impact measurement, evaluation, and analysis with insights into social good organizations that focuses on strength and sustainability rather than overhead. Altruist helps funders of all kinds, philanthropists, family offices, foundations, and businesses, direct their resources to the programs and organizations best equipped to solve the challenges they care most about in the regions of the world they're most interested in supporting. With personalized recommendations, engaging multimedia storytelling, seamless funding execution, Altruist levels the playing field, creates unprecedented efficiencies, and most importantly, drives funding to the most impactful social good organizations around. For more information, check us out at www.altruist.org. That's www.altruous.org. Thanks for listening, and now back to the show. Well, I, I think it's also a question about standing on principle rather than, or being a moralist in a lot of ways, rather than getting serious about solving problems. True. Very true. That's kind of where I come at it, you know, from a very basic level. It's like, are we, do we want to solve this or not? And if the answer is yes, then like, let's pay good people to do it. Yeah. You know, I think it also speaks, a lot of what I see out there as really, you know, as the conversation around organizational evaluation has evolved, it seems to be landing in a fun, a funny place where it's like we've moved away from the overhead to, to an extent. But now even the cutting edge stuff, the stuff that's seen as cutting edge, it's all focused around an efficiency metric. It's like cost per outcome, which is directly tied to salary. So it's, it's like we've moved beyond overhead. We're talking about ca- cost per outcome, but it's still a race to the bottom, which means we have to sacrifice overhead. Right, right. I think I do want an efficient organization. I do want an organization that is going to, you know, use the the resources I provide, you know, in as streamlined of a manner as possible. However, what if I'm funding a very efficient organization that's not implementing a good program? Then you're just making sure that more people get the not so good program. A program is extending its reach, but it's not reaching the participants with the right resources. Yeah, what you're talking about is really quality and depth of impact, right? Mm -hmm. It's short-termism versus long-termism, too. Yeah. Like, if all we care about is the outputs, the efficiency of outputs, nobody's looking at the quality and long-term effect that that has on folks. Exactly. It's funny. It puts me in the mind of an exercise I was told to do at somewhere I used to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were told to, to dream big. Think about our department one day having 150 people. What would they be able to do? What kind of work would we be able to do? I was kind of insulted by it because, yeah, that would be great. But right now my team is one. I need to go from one to two to three to be able to actually do the work that needs to be done. So I can dream about 150. 
I can dream about what I want to see in the long term, but I also need some very uh, realistic, pragmatic decisions to be made about how I hire one other person. Yeah. And so for me, that kind of goes along with kind of qualitative and quantitative data being both necessary for, you know, for, for impact measurement. I think we have to think about the short term and the long term. Uh, it's all well and good if we start thinking about how we want the world to look in 2050. However, it's 2023 now. And so there's 27 years between 2023 and 2050. Mm. What, is, what are things going to look like during that period as well? So I think we've got to have an eye on the long term, but we can't take our eye off of the short term because then we're, we're living in fantasy. And, and I think it is important to dream, but you know, we also need to be living in reality. Yeah. One of the things that we have spoken about is uh, sort of the rise of new programs teaching people m and &E work. Mm -hmm. It's been around for a while, but there's more and more programs popping up in universities and such. What is the future of the profession? And I ask this knowing about, obviously, the recent explosion of AI. In an AI-driven world, what is the role of a human evaluator? I think the role is to interpret what actually happened, what is actually happening. Uh, you know, AI, you know, the kind of the data science work before that is, is really good at prediction. It's really good at saying how something could work, how something should work. But it doesn't really tell us yet how something does work or something did work. And so I think there's still a role for, for us to be able to actually look retrospectively and, and see if this prescribed path, number one, actually occurred and two, what the effects of it were. So, so yeah, I, I, am a, I am not one of those who's necessarily afraid of AI in my profession. Hmm. I have a lot of other fears about it, but <laughs> not, in, not, in my, not in my profession. Got it. This is sort of an open question. Uh, it's a little bit of a, uh, I'm putting you on the spot, I realize. In your career, you've mostly worked for large institutions. You've worked in education, which is notoriously slow moving. You were a Salesforce most recently. Large, large companies, large groups. When we were talking about Altruist, I was sort of teasing you that I thought that at heart you were actually an entrepreneur and, and you know, a startup guy is kind of how <laughs> I put it. Yes, you um, did. Yes, you did. You know, why, why altruist? Why did you choose to take this path? Because you, you could have gone to any sort of established M&E organization, started a consultancy. You know, there's a million things you could have done. Why did you choose the path of social entrepreneurship? And why is altruist specifically exciting to you? I did end up choosing this path because it was something new for me, but somewhere where I could still apply, you know, my, my, the skills and experience that I, I love so much and I'm still able to do the job of an evaluator but in a different setting and that's how I've really framed my career so far and really planned it so I started in a school district you know working for the LA Unified School District as an internal evaluator there learned some fascinating things had lots of money to do studies and then 2008 happened <laughs> and so then I went to a nonprofit to help them 
figure out what uh, what they needed to do with respect to impact measurement and how to use that to to improve the work that they were doing. Kind of did what I needed to do there, and then I went to what at the time was the Salesforce Foundation to again be their be their eval internal evaluator to talk about how uh, their citizen philanthropy was go was working, their strategic grants and their uh, technology donation program. So. I've always been looking for a new milieu, so to speak, uh, to, to apply this work. And I think what was really helpful, honestly, was being laid off from Salesforce as part of their 10% reduction in force back in January of 2023. Salesforce, for the most part, treated their workers as professionals. I remember when Mike Pence, when he was governor of Indiana, signed into law some pretty draconian anti-LGBTQIA uh, legislation. Yeah. So Mark Benioff fired off a tweet saying, if this is going to be the law in Indiana, well, maybe Salesforce needs to relocate its Indiana workers. Hmm. It's something that, um, that I think really stuck with me. And from that, Mark Benioff received an award from GLAAD, hmm. you know, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, about being an ally. And he got up to speak, and the thing that really struck me is he said, Salesforce is nothing without its employees. Like, if I don't treat my employees well, nothing that I want to get done will get done. To me, it seems like a natural progression to now take this into the social entrepreneurship space. Uh, hopefully you think so too. I had a lot of confidence in bringing you into the mix because, you know, we didn't know each other well, but it was pretty clear, uh, your intelligence was very clear and your passion for the space was very, was very clear. I also am fortunate to know many of the people that you've worked with in your past mm -hmm. who have universally spoken glowingly of you. So I had a great deal of validation as well, <laughs> even if that didn't come through in our quote unquote interviews, like in, the, in those conversations, I sort of was able to validate, you know, in other ways, but also knowing that, you know, with the layoff, Salesforce didn't do everything well, but they did give folks a bit of a runway, which is important in their early stage startup. So I know I had a sense that you could do it if you wanted to. Yeah. And, and I did, I think just as important to me though yeah. is uh i like to collaborate yeah uh i don't know if that has been has made itself abundantly clear through this through this talk but i do enjoy collaborating with people yeah. and it was important for me that if i was going to join this space to be working alongside someone who really understands the need for the nonprofit sector to, you know, to really, you know, be, be held up to, uh, to address, you know, these, these incredible challenges to see the promise of nonprofits, yeah. you know, from, from the large to the small, to see the value of impact measurement, uh, to not say, well, the philanthropy, the philanthropic sector doesn't really care about impact measurement. They just want those vanity metrics. Right. And so well, you saw the potential in that as well. And that just made it so much easier for me to, to decide. I feel very much the same way about folks who are sort of on the front lines doing the field work as you do about evaluators. I feel protective of them. I think it's a noble thing to give up comfort and revenue and safety and, and all those things to go do something good for other people. So I want to be out there getting those people's backs. Another thing that I, I saw in you, you know, even beyond the other stuff that I mentioned that I think you and I share is some frustration and, and disappointment with 
people in organizations who talk a good game but then don't follow through. I, I think we've both experienced the promise of, of deep investment in things that matter and a real commitment to values-based stuff. And in, in one way or another, it just sort of doesn't happen. Right. Yeah. And I see, I see this and in, in, in talking to you, I, I saw this as an opportunity to, to do that well on our, on our own terms, to have totally uncompromised agency in how this goes. I think that uncompromising agency is is not something you necessarily get when you work internal to mm. an organization yeah. because there is an organizational agency that that you must uh, that you must abide by or help to create you know help to kind of recreate. Yeah, there is there is a huge frustration there. Um, we definitely did bond over that. <laughs> uh, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Okay. I think now more than ever. You know, our society and our planet need nonprofits to succeed, and we need nonprofits to be given the appropriate resources yeah. to succeed. Uh, I think we're we're seeing that governments and corporations will contribute to the solution, yeah. but will not be the solution entirely. And when you've got people who who are really you know gung-ho about doing something because it makes good copy and then uh really don't follow through again it's it goes back to who we're trying to support yeah. and you're really doing a disservice there and so i want to be supporting those organizations that are actually you know putting their money where their mouth is whatever little money they've got and are actually making a difference and creating that that impact to you know foment transformation yeah no i would totally agree with that and I, I would even add for me a lot of it's it just comes down to integrity like you know if we're going to pat ourselves on the back for doing good things then we should actually be doing good things the yes. other the other thing to me is is urgency it's we're out of time like the climate change you want to look at all the social justice issues over the past several years mental health issues that have popped up i mean you you name it like there's just so much urgency right now and there's no reason there's no reason at all why we can't be seriously working towards a lot of these issues and there are people doing it but we need more we need all hands on deck and yeah. for me it's the integrity piece but it's also the sense of urgency that we, we can solve these problems people out there are working hard to do it they know the right things to do they just need some wind in their sails absolutely i think if we didn't feel that way we wouldn't be having this conversation, <laughs> Probably honestly. Uh, Go get a real job. <laughs> a different job. This is a real job. I know. I tease. <laughs> I, tease. I mean, just there, there are easier things to do than start a new company. Yes, as I'm, as I'm learning. <laughs> uh, but uh, it's, it is all worth it in the end. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the ends justify the means in a way. I'm glad we're on this journey together. Yeah, I'm excited about it. So I've got a question for you. Oh, yeah? So one of the other things we have in common is perhaps a love of, but definitely an attendance at Burning Man. <laughs> you know, this, this festival. I did the end not of August. <laughs> uh, you know, it is, it is uh, for a week. It is this experimental utopian community. Yep. It is not a festival. And I'm curious to know... How you see that fitting in to, to the work that you're doing here? Wow, that's a big question. There, when I think about doing the work at Altars, I think about other stuff first. But the things that I really value about the burn are probably not what everybody thinks about. 
I've had very memorable conversations with people where good people are looking to do important things in, in direct and, and very efficient ways. My first year there, I attended a lecture uh, at Center Camp where this uh, literature professor from Brooklyn, lifelong burner, was talking about the real conflict of Burning Man supposedly being this very populist, this very egalitarian, open society, yet everywhere you look is cultural appropriation. Mm -hmm. It's very expensive to get there uh, between the ticket price and the, you know, all the, the fees and the food and everything that goes along with the, taking the time off. It's, it's inherently elitist while being populist in spirit in certain ways. And there's a certain lack of integrity there. He wasn't calling people out in the negative. What he was saying was that it's incumbent on us as burners to bring the values, the principles of Burning Man that we all care about to people in the outside world. And he was advocating for Burning Man Without Walls. He was advocating for scholarship programs and for bringing true inclusivity to something that can talk a good game but doesn't always live up to the hype. Mm -hmm. I had a conversation more recently with somebody who had invented a solar array that fits in a shipping container that could be deployed anywhere and power essentially a small city. Oh, wow. And he'd prototype this thing. and We were literally sitting under it. I had no idea. We were sitting under it while we were having this conversation. He points to it. And he says, you see that thing? It comes out of the shipping container that it's on, expands out. It's powering this entire camp. And so Burning Man is a very fossil fuel intensive experience. Yes. But they've been measuring that uh, historically. You know, all the way back to, to day one, they've been measuring the, the fossil fuel footprint of Burning Man. And this is a person who was on the board of the Burning Man Foundation who I was talking to trying to be fully burdened about it. The food that's used, the power that, that is required, the fossil fuels burned to get there, all, all of the things. Doing the power grid in a way that will retroactively offset the lifetime footprint of Burning Man. Oh. Ooh. And they've, they've calculated, they've gone to real social impact conferences and, and talked about it. You know, that one comes to mind. The other one is, is it, you know, the Burning Man Foundation has Fly Ranch, which is a permanent installation. And at the ranch, they have tons of experiments going. You know, the one that comes to mind really is indigenous plant species restoration. They're actually rebuilding the original flora from this region of Nevada, which is largely a desert, uh, and doing so in a sustainable way that aligns with what little I know about mm -hmm. sustainable agriculture and, and horticulture practices. So it's, it's those. It's, it's challenging your beliefs. It's you know, exploring art and it's having fun and it's meeting new people and having compelling interactions. But what I go back for year after year is those conversations. Also learned about fourth world development there. Okay. About, about new approaches to, to developing uh, third world regions in a way that has them leapfrog first world cultures rather than sort of, you know, bring them along and, and not make them quite so bad. They're the ones leading the rising tide that yeah. is raising all ships as opposed to the first world. Yeah. And people take care of each other, too. It's, it's, it's the kind of thing where you're supposed to show up with everything that you need to survive and, and enjoy the week. But, you know, I tell people you could show up there naked with nothing and people will take care of you. So it's just a really cool little temporary society that you can immerse yourself in for a week, learn from and try to bring some of those things back to real life. I love it. And uh, <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say some of these things. And actually, they uh, it resonate and I think are pretty similar with, with what I get from, from Burning Man as well. The transience of it all mm. uh, is something that's always struck me because this is an 80,000 member community that springs up in the Nevada desert once a year, yeah. becomes the third largest city in Nevada, and then disappears. It doesn't 
have to be there. Right. There is nothing saying that Burning Man must occur every year, but people come together to to give of themselves. And I think when you said, you know, this is this is an opportunity for people to to give and to provide, yeah. I think that's when Burning Man is at its best. When people are actually interacting and giving of 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 themselves. I think there are a lot of people there who go for the party. Yeah, and are. they that's, are the takers, the and and that 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 can become problematic. Yeah. And also, I think the thing you said about it being a very privileged group. I wish a lot more people of color would go to Burning Man, yeah. uh, but it is it is pretty cost prohibitive. It is expensive. It is also yeah. really rough to do. I think the environment we're in tries to kill us twenty four seven, and it is not an easy thing to do. But I, I really do think that there. Um, that I think Burning Man Without Walls, Burning Man Without Borders is 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 a wonderful idea, and I yeah. I think it should be explored. I hope I hope the Burning Man Foundation does. No, they they are actively investing in it. Oh, there, there's also an active need-based scholarship program, which I know works. Uh, my cousin, who's a starving student at the time, you know, got in and, and, yeah. and went on that. So I know mm-hmm. that they're actually doing that, and and they're just good people thinking about it. So even even for the folks that don't you know make the trip for whatever reason there are good people thinking about how to bring that spirit out that's in a way that's more accessible. Mm-hmm. It's a leave no trace culture. So once the city disappears, there are people out there for, I think it's like two weeks afterwards, literally combing the desert, picking up every scrap of, of trash. We, burners would call it moop. Matter, matter, matter out, of, out place. of place. Yeah. But it's, it's like completely as much as humanly possible left as pristine as it was when we arrived. I'm curious to know... If you think there's anything you're seeing in the social sector, any kind of a trend that you think is actually doing more harm than good, it's that lack of integrity. It's it's people saying they're doing good things, believing they're doing good things because they wrote a check or because they have a program. Mm-hmm. And they're either investing things that are irrelevant, so there's opportunity costs there where that, that money could have gone to a higher impact program. Uh, or things that are actively harmful. You know, some of the books that have come out more recently talk about the Scared Straight program, which had millions of dollars of investment, and actually the graduates of the program ended up in a randomized control study being more willing to wind up in jail than their peers who didn't go through it. There's there's many examples of celebrity, you know, celebrity participation gone wrong. I think it's, you know, incumbent upon funders to, to support innovation, to look for high-impact programs, to be aware of negative side effects of the programs they're invested in. When we were talking about vanity metrics, the first type of organization, I've worked with a couple of these that, that come to mind, are certain types of rehab programs. So I'm aware of certain organizations that run a, a domestic facility where, where folks who have been involved in substance abuse or victims of abuse from somebody else will, will come and live. You know, they're doing, on one level, great work, but what they're measuring is number of people in the program, their ability to get them out of whatever situation it was, their ability to get them sober, if that's the case. Mm-hmm. And then there's, you know, other things that they do. But it's fairly common where the people who enter the program never leave. They're there for a very long time, and they end up dependent on the providers that they're working with. And so when we look at vanity metrics, it's so easy to, to look at, you know, numbers and say, hey, we're so successful, we've helped these, these folks, our target population, we're helping, we're helping, we're helping. But what's the goal? Is the goal just to get them out of the situation or is the goal to get them into thriving lives, to get them into a safe environment, to get them employment if that's what they need, uh, to get them to self-sufficiency where they can 
be truly independent. To me, that's the mark of success. And that's where you start to talk about impact rather than just the outputs, which right. as you put, as you said, if that's as far as you go, you're not really telling the full story. And so I think organizations, I think oftentimes, you know, it's hard to say they're doing more harm than good because, because they're not they're, they are, they are helping people. They're getting people out of a dire situation, but there's so much more that so much more potential there that being able to measure your impact, being able to understand it, look at it. If you're, if you're an honest broker as someone who runs those organizations, you should want to improve. You should want to deepen that impact. But as a funder, you should be aware of those things and look for organizations that have really innovative approaches that are, that are oriented towards the impact, even if they can't fully measure it yet, mm -hmm. that are oriented in that way rather than purely fixating on yeah. number of people served, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there is, you know, there are there are a lot of indicators between number of people served and, you know, societal change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, we've got to look at those because it can take a long time to see impact. I think especially in education. Yeah. It'll take years as as we all know being students at one time ourselves. But there's got to be a line that we can draw. Yeah. There's got to be a direction that we can see where if we're starting to hit certain metrics, you know, get data on certain indicators that it's showing us we're going in the right direction. And, and I think it's, it's okay to look at those leading indicators because again, they're, they're showing us, they're showing us the way it's, it's again, a fear of not being able to show all the impact right away. Mm -hmm. Uh, that, that again, I think that, that kind of hobbles some organizations. Yeah. But you'd be amazed at how much fear dominates that as well. Sometimes the leaders of the organization get so attached to the people they're serving and so invested in the direct service work that they don't want to give that up. It, it, it can become a toxic relationship where you're actually inhibiting that individual's growth because you don't want to let them go because they're your client, they're your mm -hmm. friend, they're your confidant. They're... Yes. So it's just so important. That, and this is where monitoring and evaluation really, I think, can inform the impact that a program is having and improve the impact that it's having to establish boundaries, to say, here's what we're willing to do through our services. Here's how we measure the success of that. And anything outside of that scope runs the risk of becoming harmful rather than supportive. Yes, I've seen that in action in a lot of organizations. Uh, one of the best uses of a theory of change, whether mm -hmm. it's for an organization or for a program, is to document what the work is and what it is not. Right. And I've gone back to, to, to teams, to departments, to organizations that I've helped build theories of change for. And, you know, I've asked them, you know, how, like, how has it gone? Do you still use this? What have you been able to use it for? And the thing that I've heard the most is it allows us to say no, mm -hmm. because if it doesn't fit into how we're defining yeah. our success, then it can be a detractor. And so it's easy to say we're, we can't do that because it doesn't fit with what we've already thought of. Yeah. I have a question for you. You know, we, we have long-term visions. We have values. We have a couple of BHAGs. I hope to develop more BHAGs. Mm -hmm. For me, part of the BHAG process uh, or one, one good BHAG to create is people you want to work with and organizations that you want to have on the platform. In some ways, I guess it's a marketing and growth thing. It's a function of success, whatever. But if those people and organizations take us seriously enough to, to collaborate, it's an indication that we're doing some things right. I'm curious, who are some of the people and organizations out there in the world that you see that if and when we're able to 
gain their approval and their respect and collaborate or work with them or have them listed on the site, whatever the case might be, that you'll be, it'll be a moment in time for you. It'll be really something you're proud of, of having achieved. One way that I am viewing success here is first from the nonprofit perspective. Uh, if my eventual team and me has nonprofits knocking down our door, trying to get vetted to join the platform, that to me is important because we're seen as, as a trusted ally. Hmm. We want nonprofits to come knock down our doors. And so to actually have that, to, to be able to come to you and say, dude, I need more people because the nonprofits keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Mm -hmm. I would love for that to happen. I would also like to see some, some foundations, some granting institutions see us as somebody who's doing credible due diligence for potential grantees. You know, a lot of the larger foundations have, you know, have teams to do this, but if they're able to also use our work and really you know, give us that credibility, I think for me, that would be another, another sign of success too. Yeah. I think on that level, it's a sign of sophistication. It's, it's how sophisticated their team is depend, you know, at the sort of low end of the resource level or sophistication mm -hmm. level it'll be turnkey for those people that they'll see our research and our uh, M&E work and that'll be as far as they need to take it. But for, for ones that do have their own in-house teams, my hope is that we're top of the funnel for them, that we can help them discover things they wouldn't have otherwise. And they can use our research as a starting point for going deeper on their own. Yeah. I also have a mark of success in terms of evaluators. Mm. Uh, Cause I know we're creating this in part to also give evaluators a place to highlight their their information highlight their data share their work mm -hmm. because if a, not, if a lot of nonprofits are knocking down our door we still can't do all of the vetting we still can't mm -hmm. evaluate every single organization out there and so to bring in more through the evaluator partnerships that that we want to develop I think is going to be is going to be really important and so to have my colleagues, well, I think you know enough about m e for me to be able to say our colleagues mm. in the evaluation space to have them see Altruist as a, again, a credible platform for them to share their work. I would love for effective impact measurement to have a broader influence, to have a wider influence. I would love for some some internal evaluators to contribute to revenue generation. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a tension in our work because if we are revenue generating, are we truly, are we truly objective? And I would love for Altruist to be able to be that example of being able to generate revenue while being objective and being able to show both. So to be able to give that to, to, to evaluators, I think would be, would be a really big market success for me too. So come on board, evaluators. Come on. <laughs> For me, some of those BHAGs or marks of success would be organizations I hold in very high regard coming on. I think uh, Polaris Project came up in conversation recently. I, I think they're terrific. Oh, Polaris is, is wonderful. They're an anti-human uh, trafficking 
organization that is pretty darn amazing. Yeah, well, and my nerdy side really gets activated when they talk about, you know, their their operational workflows, how they leverage CRM, like really the efficiency with which they operate and do some really impactful work. <laughs> uh, Greenwave for me is like this little organization nobody's yeah. ever heard of, but I've just been a fan of theirs since I heard about it. <laughs> they they what they they've got a really niche program and and it's a a very humble beginnings. I mean, the founder is not a nonprofit guy. He's like a fisherman. But what they do is basically train fishermen who are at risk of essentially losing their livelihoods to instead of just double down on a career that has a questionable future and is extractive largely to our environment, to turn them into farmers on the water. So they're they're growing in these cherished farms that are suspended in the water. So the, the surface footprint's like 30 yards or something like that square. Mm. But it goes super deep, and they're growing things like kelp and oysters and mussels and all kinds of things. So it's, it's, it's giving these fishermen that had somewhat bleak career futures. And, and the, you know, fishing is a family business. That's generational. So there's a lot of pride wrapped up in that and a lot of family legacy wrapped up in it. To give them something that checks all those boxes and fills their needs, but in a way that is environmentally sustainable and healthy for our ecosystem and for, mm-hmm. for our diets is pretty incredible. So like little organizations like that, that basically nobody's ever heard of who are just doing really cool work in very interesting ways, very quietly Yeah, to get those guys some recognition, I think yeah. means a lot. So as we can get some of those, if Greenwave ever hears this and signs up, like that would be a huge <laughs> coup for me personally, but to, to start getting more and more of those stories, and help them scale their solutions. The more stories I hear about that, the more excited I'll be about it. Yeah, I can definitely say as I'm now meeting with nonprofits to kind of work through our framework, bring them on board, I get to hear some pretty cool stories mm. about really cool organizations doing some really cool things. It's definitely a highlight of my day when I get to hear about organizations uh, really working hard to to provide some pretty innovative support to people who really need it. It's a, it's a perk. Yeah. You know, as we've been talking to more and more organizations and starting to bring some onto the platform, it's been eye-opening for me to see how many of these organizations, you know, in some cases have annual budgets in the millions, well-resourced, don't have fully fleshed out m programs, are starting to evaluate their own measurement practices now, rethink their approach to impact. So it's, you know, you don't have to be this tiny organization to not sort of have that fully vetted. You can be you know, having been around for a decade, not be where you want to be. What do you say to organizations who don't have those resources, don't have the internal team, don't have the robustness of metrics that they might want? What's their role to play in altruists and where do they get started down that journey? I think first having the will to do it. I've worked at a large foundation that was pretty darn well resourced. I was the first M&E person hired there and they had already been in existence for 14, 15 years. So any organization can come to it. It helps to start. It really helps to start. And I go back to Simon Sinek on this and really start with (laughs) why. Why does your organization exist? Why do you get up in the morning to do the work of the organization? That's already the beginnings of an impact statement. And then you kind of work backwards. Okay, well, how do we know we're going to be there? Okay, well, what do we what do we have to do to to make sure that we know we're on the right track? So, what do we have planned? Okay, what do we have coming in to to be able to do the things that we have planned to be able to push the work forward? You could really just start with with that. 
you know, why is your impact, your how is kind of getting to your, your outcomes and mm -hmm. even your activities. The what is really related to your inputs and, and your outputs. So just starting with that framework, why, how, what is something that can, that can be done to at least get the ball rolling. There's another myth. I think that we that we face in the social sector in philanthropy that if it's not complex, it's not good. Mm. I've always found that if it is complex, it doesn't necessarily get used. And so there's a balance. We've got to be able to look at complex problems and and really, you know, do justice to them, but we can do it in a in a simple way. You know, simple doesn't mean simplistic and complex doesn't necessarily mean complicated. I think the role that altruists can play is to help that balance be highlighted. Hmm. I have a PhD in education in, in educational evaluation. I've been doing this work for 20 some years. Doesn't mean I'm the only person who knows how to do it because I've been doing it for so long. I would love to see a democratization of monitoring and evaluation. It can be done at different levels. Um, you may not be able to answer questions as sophisticated as you need, but you are going to be able to answer some questions and a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. By answering those questions, you generate a lot more that might lead to some more money in the budget to be able to build the capacity. Yeah. So, there are things that can be done that while while not you know something you need a phd to to create are things that you can do with you know with your with your content knowledge and with your kind of organizational knowledge yeah well i i think that's right on you know democratizing uh the m e process but I, I also think democratizing access to that information on the donor side is important too yes Absolutely. Um, and as you're fond of reminding people, you know, the m &E work is important for accountability's sake, but especially early stage, maybe especially late stage, I don't know, at any stage, it's a valuable learning experience and can be used, if nothing else, to help improve your programs and operation and, and deepen the impact you're already having. We often say that we're lifelong learners as people. Organizations need to be lifelong learners as well. Early stage, late stage, any stage. Uh, there's always learning to be done. When M&E is at its most effective is when there is that learning taking place. Uh, otherwise, it's just compliance. And you can hire you, know, you can hire whoever you want to do that compliance because it's just going to go into a report that goes into a binder, that goes to a funder, that it will never, ever be read. You completed an exercise, you fulfilled the task, you checked a box. Fine. But for it to actually be useful and to be it's got to be it's got to be used by by the organization because funders aren't necessarily going to do it for you it's, it's yet another example of if not you then who if not now then when uh, organizations need to do the same thing uh, with their with their evaluation data because ain't nobody going to do it for you thanks for sharing your time and your expertise absolutely it's, it's fun to get to talk about altruists a little bit and about our own journeys. And thank you for sharing your time and expertise as well. This is, this is the start of a fun journey. And, and I, I think, you know, you bring a lot of amazing knowledge and, and instincts and insight to the table. So uh, I'm excited to be on this journey uh, in general, but especially with, with you. 
I'm excited about you know all the things that we have in front of us uh, to really you know drive some efficiencies in the space, bring bring about some of the changes we've talked about, and, and start unlocking all that money locked up in DAFs and uh, being sent to the same organizations year after year, and, and start funding some real innovation and, and uncovering some great programs. This is going to be fun. This is going to be a good journey, and I'm glad we're doing it together. Well, that's our show about Altruist. Hope you enjoyed it. We'd love for you to take the next step by checking out the new platform at altruist.org. That's A-L-T-R-U-O-U-S dot org. We're rapidly onboarding new high-impact programs for your consideration. We're signing up customers and seeking early investment to help build out the full platform and reach as many impact-driven funders as possible. If you enjoyed the show, please follow, subscribe, or leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts and share the link with any friends or colleagues you think might find it valuable. We've got another great show in store for you next week. Matt Scott will join us for his second appearance on Cause and Purpose. He just published a new book called The High Growth Nonprofit. He has a ton to update us on and some new stories to tell. Hope you can join us. Until then, Cause and Purpose is a production of altruist.org. On behalf of myself, Eric, and our entire team, thank you for listening, and we look forward to speaking with you again soon.